0: My name is Jeff Myron. I'm a senior lecturer in economics at Harvard. And I'm a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Let me start just by welcoming you, thanking you for coming. Uh, it's very nice to have you here, and I hope that you enjoy uh, the program today and tomorrow. Um, second, I'd like to say thanks to sort of various people. First, just to Cato generally for uh, undertaking this activity, the Cato Papers on Public Policy, uh, to Ed Crane, who signed on to the idea initially, and to John Allison, who uh, has been on board uh, more recently. Um, Also, the people at Cato who did a huge amount of work to make it happen. Uh, Ashley March, who is in charge of the fundraising, uh, in particular, the funding we've received from the Searle Foundation, the Earhart Foundation, and the Ewing Marion Coffin Foundation, also to the conference organizers, to Rachel Goldman and Marissa Labonte, who did a great job, uh, made my life sort of much, much easier. Um, So the only other thing I want to say before we start the program is to just give you a very quick description of what this conference is supposed to be about. Um, It's slightly unusual uh, relative to other academic conferences. We're trying to present, to commission, present, publish, distribute new research on public policies by academic economists and other sort of academic social scientists. Now, this is Cato, so there is a particular sort of flavor to the research to a certain degree. <laughs> Obviously, Cato has a acknowledged, a uh, is proud and happy to uh, be thought of as libertarian, okay? That doesn't mean that we're going to commission, that we have any desire to commission research, which always comes to libertarian conclusions or free market conclusions, that assumes the uh, conclusions before looking at data. Um, But it does mean we're going to be explicit that there is a perspective there in the background. We think of it as a a flavor, a hint, not as uh, determinative. Um, It certainly means that, perhaps in contrast to some other organizations, We keep a very open mind to the idea that interventions have costs, not just benefits, or in reverse, that smaller government has potential benefits, not just costs. I think the best way to summarize it is based on a line from my former undergraduate advisor, Bernie Safran, who not necessarily with respect to policy, but more generally just said, I'm willing to be wrong, but I need to be convinced. So I think that's the Cato attitude uh, on public policy. We're willing to be convinced that there's some interventions that make sense, but it takes data and arguments and analysis, uh, not just uh, assertion. And Cato thinks that this particular niche that we've tried to carve out is a useful approach that ought to be represented in the world of academic conferences, in the world of think tanks. Uh, And of course, we hope that uh, you will be convinced and agree that it's important and useful as well. So there are two papers this afternoon. Um, There's going to be a uh, session chair for each of those two sessions. So I'm going to introduce the session chairs and then let uh, them uh, take over from there. So the first paper is on off-balance sheet liabilities and the session chair will be Jesus fernandez Villavarde from Pennsylvania. Thank you.
1: Thank you. So I will be uh, chairing the first session, which will deal with uh, off-balance sheet federal liabilities, which I guess... uh, I'm not from the US, I'm from Spain. And we are a country that discovered that we had huge <laughs> one day in the morning and, you know, it was quite a shock. Uh, so maybe this is just a warning for all of you to pay a lot of attention to what I think uh, Jim Hamilton is going <laughs> well, to say because crowded. I really, really think it's it crowded. has a lot of real consequences. The rules of the game will be he will talk for 30 minutes and each of the discussions then will talk for 20 minutes and we will have some time for questions and answers. Thank you. <laughs>
2: Well, we all know that the uh, federal government owes a lot of money. And I'm going to be reviewing some of the implicit and explicit commitments and obligations that aren't included in those those big numbers you already know about. Uh, My paper begins with a very brief discussion of some of the possible motivations for why you'd want liabilities, commitments on the part of the government, other than uh, just to repay the debt. Uh, There's literature that you might be able to prevent or, uh, if you come in late, respond to banking crises. Uh, Other arguments suggest that uh, kind of policy can create moral hazard uh, problems and actually be the uh, aggravating cause of the crisis in the first place. Uh, Another reason you might want off-balance sheet commitments is because uh, you want to subsidize certain socially desired activities, Home ownership, uh, maybe have social benefits, education, uh, hence loan guarantees and direct loans in in those sectors. Uh, And finally, uh, you might have an off-balance sheet commitment in terms of your uh, dedication to providing for the future retirees, certainly retirees from the the federal government, but you can also make a public goods argument for uh, why uh, you might want to do that more generally. Uh, so, uh, just to remind you of the numbers we're going to be starting with, uh, $11.3 trillion is the net debt. That's the official uh, debt owed by the Treasury to the public as of the end of last fiscal year. And I'll be looking at uh, items that aren't included in that total, uh, how big they are, with a particular focus on, on the way they changed and, and possible contribution uh, in terms of the financial crisis. Now, those of you familiar with TurboTax know that there's a feature that as you enter new data, there's a a little uh, running total at the top that tells you how much you owe so far based on what you've heard. And so you'll be seeing that from time to time. That's where we're starting with the $11.3 trillion uh, on balance sheet liability of the Treasury. Uh, And the five categories I'm going to be discussing are first, uh, commitments to housing. Uh, Then I'll take up other categories of loan guarantees from the uh, federal government, Uh, talk briefly about deposit insurance, Uh, review the role of uh, the new things the Federal Reserve has been doing in terms of uh, influencing these numbers, and uh, finally take a look at the biggest item, which is uh, thinking about the balance sheets, the assets and liabilities of the uh, government trust funds. So in terms of housing, that uh, started with the uh, FHA, established in 1934. To ensure, uh, uh, provide government insurance for uh, some privately issued mortgages, and that's still going very strong. Uh, as of the end of fiscal year 2012, uh, the uh, uh, GAO estimates that the uh, FHA was on the line for $1.3 trillion uh, in guaranteed loans. Uh, and so that's the official off-balance sheet number. Uh, If you read the notes to the US Treasury financial statements, that's the number you'll see from this category. I'm not going to include it yet because I want to pick up those loans uh, a little further down the food chain. So in 1938, Congress established Fannie Mae as a quasi-private, quasi-public uh, entity, sometimes called a government-sponsored enterprise. And Fannie Mae was supposed to buy these mortgages that the FHA was, was providing a government guarantee behind. Uh, there's a history of that. In '68, it was split off into Ginnie Mae, which was explicitly then a government cor- corporation, and Fannie Mae, which was supposedly a private corporation from then on. And in 1970, Congress uh, chartered Freddie Mac uh, to be sort of a, a little brother to Fannie and, and provide some competition, do the same kind of thing. And it's never been totally clear, were these private companies, were they public? Uh, Fisher Fowl. I, I think the truth is that that they have a a mixture of each. The the bankruptcy process for these guys was never totally clear. They're exempt from certain taxes. Uh, And one of the things they did was to issue their own debt. Uh, It's typically called agency debt. And a lot of people regarded this as pretty similar to uh, to Treasury debt. Uh, And although it it came with an explicit statement, the U.S. Treasury is not behind this. This is Fannie Mae or, or, or Freddie Mac Uh, uh, A lot of studies concluded that uh, these GSEs were able to borrow at favorable rates, because investors perceived that if they got into trouble, the the government would would basically bail them out. So for example, one estimate from the CBO was that they uh, paid 40 basis points lower for each dollar of of agency debt that they borrowed because of that that quasi uh, uh, guarantee. And if you had any doubts about that, it seems to me it would be resolved in 2008 when the government took over the insolvent Fannie and Freddie into conservatorship. Uh, and so currently the U.S. government is the sole owner of these two entities. Uh, they're earning a profit again at the moment, and people made a big deal of that. That profit is coming to the, uh, to the government. Uh, who's holding their liabilities? My view is uh, we want to include the liabilities of these entities in an off-balance sheet uh, summary of, of what the U.S. is on the line for. So let's talk about that. As I said, uh, one thing that the GSEs did was issue their own debt, this agency debt, and use it to buy mortgages. And so here's a, uh, a graph of the retained mortgage portfolios of Fannie and Freddie. Uh, that came to about $1.5 trillion worth uh, in 2004. So those were the mortgages that these, uh, these two entities themselves held outright, primarily financed by issuing their own debt. Uh, but that's just the beginning of the story. Uh, another thing they would do is buy mortgages package them into securities, and then sell those securities to investors along with a guarantee. Uh, Fannie or Freddie would guarantee if if these mortgages go bad, uh, we will cover them. And by 2007, uh, between them, they had $2.7 trillion in guarantees on MBS. That's in addition to the $1.5 trillion that they held outright. And these guarantees, Fannie and Freddie would carry off their balance sheets. So if you agree with my perception that the GSEs were sort of an off-balance sheet federal liability, these guarantees were an off-balance sheet liability of the off-balance sheet liability. Uh, And so to honor that $2.7 trillion, they had $70 billion in net equity, most of which was uh, deferred tax assets. Uh, How can you how can you guarantee 2.7 trillion stuff with 70 billion? Well, you can't uh, unless unless the government's ultimately behind it. Uh, And uh, uh, as I say, then they were taken into uh, uh, conservatorship. Uh, So uh, here's what those uh, those numbers look like. So following them uh, uh, from 2006 to 2012. This is Fannie and Freddie uh, and a few others that that uh, aren't quite as big but are included in the total. Uh, so you'll see that the, uh, the direct debt, this agency debt, uh, went from about $3 trillion to $6.5 trillion between 2008 and 2010. That was when the government required Fannie and Freddie to carry these guarantees on their balance sheets. And the second line, the guarantees then went down by that same amount. Uh, adding the two of them together uh, is, uh, is that bottom total. So I, I come up with $7.5 trillion uh, from this. Uh, So in comparison, the total debt of the US uh, Treasury was $11.3 trillion. Uh, The housing commitments are almost as big uh, on their own as that total. Now, I want to emphasize this off-balance sheet idea. It's not the same as money the government owes. There are real assets behind some of this. Uh, the mortgages that are held outright are an asset that's worth something. Uh, the MBS guarantees, in principle, there's there's an asset in the present value of future uh, guarantee income that's that's going to come from those. Uh, and even if the mortgages go bad, uh, this is uh, uh, you're of course not going to lose the whole bit. So there's, it's very important to realize the off balance sheet concept is a different one from the on balance sheet concept. Although just this week there was an assessment of that 1.3 trillion that the FHA has guaranteed explicitly Uh, in their stress test analysis that would mean maybe a hundred billion dollar in uh, uh, cost assessment to the federal government. Uh, the $7.5 trillion, once you count everything together, is uh, uh, more than five times uh, that total. So it's, it's a substantial amount of, of money. Uh, and here's a little perspective on how things have changed. Uh, mortgage debt held by uh, GSEs outright or in agency or GSE-backed pools, uh, there you see its growth over time. Perhaps a little more uh, relevant to, to look at those numbers as a percent of, of GDP. So this is this is just the mortgages for which there's a direct federal connection. I'm not counting purely private mortgages at all in this total. And you see, uh, you see the uh, the boom there. Uh, what did that accomplish? Well, uh, as I say, one of the goals of this was to in. in uh, courage, home ownership, and there certainly was a, an increase in the in the home ownership rate in the U.S. Uh, at, uh, commensurate with stepping up this process, though with the housing bubble and, and collapse, uh, most of that's been undone now. Uh, what it really did was uh, was help finance an increase in mortgage debt as as percent of GDP, and then that of course has come back down. Uh, and you know, I'm not sure it made houses really more affordable. Here's Schiller's uh, real price index for housing, uh, going back a century. Uh, according to his numbers, real house prices have been fairly steady, a remarkable uh, surge there uh, in the middle and then uh, and then collapse. Uh, now here's a, a graph that I think is important to keep this in perspective. This is a summary of where the funding for mortgages is coming from. Uh, and it goes back to nineteen fifty. The the dark blue line at the top is from banks and savings and loans. Uh, those used to be the primary source, and there was an important off-balance sheet federal guarantee associated with those in terms of the guarantees of FS, uh, FSLIC deposits, uh, for example. Uh, I'll get back to that, that in a moment. Uh, but with the collapse of the savings and loans in the 80s, uh, we basically had the replacement uh, of savings and loans by the GSE and agencies uh, uh, funding more of the uh, the housing. Now, I want to emphasize that uh, you'll notice that uh, although we saw that, that growth over time, uh, as a percent of mortgages, actually the real story in the boom years of the 2000s was not the federal associated programs. It's not the uh, the Fuchsia line there. It's the ABS uh, uh, turquoise uh, line on this graph, which are private label asset-backed securities. Uh, so these were not guaranteed by the government, not guaranteed by Fannie and Freddie, not owned by any of these uh, these GSEs. Uh, and that was what really took off there in the middle, and what really fueled the, the housing boom. And so some people look at that and say, "Well, this wasn't really a federal problem. It was it was the private guys who were causing." doing the really crazy stuff, and that's, that's quite true. The question is whether those implicit federal guarantees for that big share uh, laid the groundwork, essentially, for the private guys to come in and say, well, if the government's not going to let Fanny and Freddie go, go belly up, they'll provide conditions where maybe we won't do so badly uh, either. Well, I want to get to other categories, too, here. So that's just housing. Uh, let's take a look at other loan guarantees. And the single most important category here is going to be student loans. Uh, So here's a graph of the uh, uh, private non-mortgage household debt uh, in uh, billions of dollars uh, since 2004. And I want to emphasize this comes from micro private data. Uh, uh, that's the source for, for these numbers I'll be showing on student loans. The student loans there in red, uh, that used to be the least important of these private categories in terms of total dollars, and now it's by far the most, and the federal government has been a, a key part of that. Uh, and we have historically two programs uh, run by the federal government. The first is the Federal Family Education Loan Program, Program, and that would be that was a loan guarantee program like the uh, FHA. So a, a non-federal entity would issue a loan to a student, and then the Department of Education would guarantee those loans. Uh, those came to five hundred billion in outstanding guarantees as of two thousand nine, uh, and those guarantees are another item on the official. Uh, off-balance sheet liabilities as calculated by the GAO. However, that program was discontinued in July 2010. Uh, Department of Education is no longer guaranteeing loans. Uh, And instead, their their favored uh, program today, which has been in effect uh, before as well, is direct loans. And uh, the way these work in terms of accounting is that the Department of Education borrows the money from the Treasury and lends that money to the students, and the Treasury uh, borrows from the public through a regular Treasury auction. And uh, the sum that the Department of Education owed to the Treasury grew from $100 billion in 2007 to $700 billion uh, last year. Uh, Now, there's some good news and some bad news about this. The good news is I'm not going to ding it, on your off-balance sheet account, these these loans through the Treasury, because they're already included, it's already included in that 11.3 trillion, the 700 billion that the Treasury borrowed in order to loan to the uh, Department of Education. So in some ways, you might say, well, we should we should reduce that 11.3 trillion total because some of it should be off-balance sheet uh, because there are assets uh, that go with it, namely these loans. That's the good news. The bad news is that these loans aren't aren't doing so hot. Uh, So, uh, here again, this is a summary from the micro uh, data sets uh, of uh, student loans and of uh, that very large sum of of, uh, uh, student loans outstanding, only 40% is in repayment and not delinquent. what exactly is the status of the other 60% is, is not clear. Uh, it must be clear to the Department of Education. They've got, got the numbers, but I haven't found a, a direct accounting uh, from them. Uh, this, as I say, comes from an analysis of, of, of micro data sets. Uh, but here's something you do find in the notes to the Department of Education's uh, 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 summary of the student loan program. Uh, this is a, a screenshot from, uh, from the Department of Education uh, financial statement. And it's a summary of what's going on with that Treasury debt. What's going on with the debt that the Treasury borrowed from the public and then Department of Education borrowed from uh, from the Treasury. And uh, at the end of 2012, that's that $714 billion uh, number that I, I talked about. But an interesting thing is that that $714 billion, if you compare it to the direct loan program, the direct loan program is only $550 billion. Mm-hmm. So what's this other money that the Treasury's been borrowing uh, that they're not loaning to students? Well, you can see those other entries. There's uh, the loan purchase commitment and loan participation purchase. And these were implemented during the financial crisis. The story was markets are illiquid. People are scared. The Department of Education said, let's buy up some of these student loans uh, as part of the, uh, the general uh, uh, federal program at the time. And they did that by borrowing from the Treasury. Uh, to do that, however, if you looked at those categories, the loan purchase commitment and loan participation uh, purchase, uh, they really haven't come down much since uh, since the financial crisis ended. Here we are at then in two thousand and twelve, practically with the same uh, same obligations on the books. And the really fascinating thing to me was that uh, guaranteed loan program entry, uh, if you see that, under FFEL guaranteed Loan program. And the reason that's interesting is because remember, the guaranteed loan program ended in July of 2010. And what this says is that during fiscal year 2011, after the program ended, the Treasury borrowed an additional $20 billion for the loan guarantee program. And in fiscal year 2012, borrowed another. 15 billion or so, so that now we're owed 43 billion. So I I did not find an explanation of what these numbers uh, mean. To me, the natural interpretation is that those guaranteed loans are going bad, and uh, the Department of Education has bought them up, bought up some of them, and uh, the way they paid for it was borrowing through the Treasury. So, so the bottom line of all this, as I read it, a lot of those loan guarantees which had been off-balance sheet are in the process of becoming on-balance sheet as they uh, get through this, this treasury borrowing program. So here's my, my calculation of the accounting for that. Let's start with the, the student loan guarantees, the reported uh, amount from the GAO. That's the official off-balance sheet entry. I'm going to subtract off uh, an amount that, uh, that comes to $265 billion in 2012. That's my calculation of uh, the amount that I think that those loan guarantees have been moved from off-balance sheet to on-balance sheet to having been included in the uh, 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 $11.3 trillion total. Uh, and then you have other loan guarantees, not quite so important, Small Business Administration, uh, Export-Import Bank. Uh, so all told, I, I calculate $7.8 trillion from uh, housing and uh, loan guarantees in terms of the off-balance sheet contribution. Okay, how about deposit insurance? Uh, so the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, uh, this is a explicitly government, Corporation insured deposits. Uh, The total deposits it insured in 1990 were 2.8 trillion. Uh, its, its deposits uh, insured by 2012 were up to 7.4 trillion. Uh, there were various new categories added during the financial crisis, uh, and some of those are finally now uh, undone. So the number at the moment, I think, if, if I looked at the current snapshot, should be uh, should be down from 7.4 uh, trillion. So the FDIC guarantees all of that. Guarantees 7.4 trillion. None of it will go bad. Uh, to make good on those guarantees, they had $33 billion in assets in 2012. And those assets, in fact, are Treasury securities. So it's basically an IOU from one part of the government to another part of the government. Uh, but here it's very clear that the FDIC uh, guarantees are backed by the full faith and credit of the United States. These are a contingent uh, obligation. Uh, and uh, uh, using the 2012 numbers, uh, there's about $7.5 trillion worth of uh, FDIC guarantees. Outstanding as of the end of last year. Uh, add that to the others, and I get the off-balance sheet total so far up to $15 trillion. Now, it's important to emphasize that uh, during, even during the financial crisis, the fees collected by the FDIC exceeded the payouts. There were no bank panics. Uh, and so some people would look at this program and say uh, it worked, uh, good thing. Uh, we can go through as much stress as we had, and, and that doesn't doesn't cause this seven and a half trillion to be a, a burden on the uh, on the government. Uh, and so, so in that sense, you might you might uh, feel comfortable about this. Now I'll revisit this a little bit in my uh, my final remarks. Uh, I want to also briefly talk about the Federal Reserve. Uh, What's the uh, contribution of that to all of this? Well, let's start with the plain vanilla stuff that the Federal Reserve used to do, an open market operation. So the main thing the Fed used to do was they would buy some of that treasury debt, buy up some of that 11.3 trillion, and the way they'd pay for it is by creating reserves, creating credits for the uh, bank's accounts with the Fed. And in the old days, those reserves would very quickly get withdrawn as cash. And so the bottom line of the operation is you basically swapped one liability of the government, which was the original interest-bearing security of the Treasury in that $11.3 trillion, and you swapped it for another liability, which is non-interest-bearing cash. So the government doesn't have to ever pay any interest on that cash. Should you think of it as a liability? Well, potentially, if everybody wanted their, wanted to, uh, uh, to turn that cash into something else, the Fed might, might need to, to do something. But I think in normal times, uh, the correct way to summarize that is that once the Fed has turned that Treasury security into cash, it's really not a significant liability of the government. It's not going to be a drain uh, on the budget in terms of making interest payments. So my view is that we should subtract Fed holdings of treasury securities from the total and not anything back in for currency. Uh, when we're doing these calculations. Now, that was in the old days. During the financial crisis, the Federal Reserve made a range of emergency loans. Uh, so as of December 2008, there was more than a half, billion, half trillion dollars in currency swaps. These are loans to other uh, foreign central banks, uh, another near half trillion in the term auction credit, longer-term loans to banks, $300 billion in commercial paper lending, $300 billion, uh, other, total of $1.7 Uh, trillion dollars there, Uh, and uh, the Fed paid for this with newly created reserves. These reserves did not end up as cash, uh, at least not so far. They've been held by banks, and they're an interest-bearing liability. The Federal Reserve pays interest on uh, these reserves. So I think in the current situation, they're very similar to short-term treasury bills in terms of uh, the way the private sector would would view them and the way the, the, the government's account sheet should view them. Uh, And uh, so I'm going to add back in interest-bearing reserves uh, when I calculate the off-balance sheet implications. So here's what happened with the emergency lending program. This is the stock of, of uh, emergency lending by the Federal Reserve uh, at each uh, historical date. Uh, now, some people have greatly exaggerated the extent of the Fed's lending by adding all the loans together, which which isn't right because these are very short-term loans that were rolled over. The correct way to calculate the, the the government's total exposure is, as I've done in this graph, which is the the total loans outstanding. uh, That never got more than $1.7 trillion, and those programs have all been wound down. They were all closed, basically, at uh, at a profit. Uh, But that wasn't the end of what the Fed has done. Uh, They were replaced by purchases of agency debt these obligations of the GSEs, the mortgage-backed securities that were guaranteed by the GSEs, and long-term uh, treasury securities. And so here's, here's the graph of the total assets of the Federal Reserve uh, from 2007 up through the present. Uh, you see that initial period where the Fed was doing emergency lending. That was wound down but it was replaced by uh, now these very large holdings by the Federal Reserve of MBS. That's the yellow uh, big holdings by the Federal Reserve of, uh, of Treasury debt. Uh, so how does that all work out? So, so here's my accounting. I'm going to uh, add in the reserve balances of member banks as another – off-balance sheet liability of the federal government, balanced perhaps by these other assets that the Fed has has been buying. I want to subtract off those treasury securities that are held by the Federal Reserve, subtract off the agency debt, and subtract off the MBS debt. And the reason I subtract those off is because I'm already counting those in my reckoning of off-balance sheet Uh, federal liabilities. Although if you didn't agree with me that Fannie and Freddie really now have been taken over by the the government uh, and, and weren't so inclined to take anything beyond the FHA guarantees for the housing commitment, uh, I, I think you should be more inclined to do so now because because now that, that's really been replaced with an even clearer off-balance sheet liability, namely interest-bearing reserves. So the bottom line there in terms of the contribution of the Fed, I conclude conclu- that the Fed was subtracting uh, about three-quarters of a trillion from total, uh, <coughs> fed, uh, total federal liabilities as of 2006. Uh, the net effect of the emergency lending was to add another trillion dollars in exposure at the uh, – uh, at the peak there in 2008. Uh, those programs were undone. And now we're in a situation where, by my reckoning, the Fed is actually making that number lower. So you thought I was only going to make it get bigger every time. My <laughs> conclusion is the Federal Reserve is actually helping to reduce the uh, uh, the total off balance sheet liabilities. Uh, but as I said, that's because I was already counting the, the Fannie and Freddie stuff in the off balance sheet liabilities. And finally, let's talk about the government trust funds. Uh, so in addition to the 11.3 trillion owned to the public, uh, the Treasury in 2012 owed, for example, $2.6 trillion to the Social Security Trust Fund. So this money that the Treasury owes Social Security is not included in that 11.3 number I've been talking about. Uh, and so in terms of the accounts, it's, a, it's another liability of the Treasury. It's counted as an asset, according to the Social Security Trust Fund. If you think about a unified federal balance sheet, Social Security plus Treasury, put them together, it's it's the federal government, uh, you're forced to a conclusion that the government has zero assets and uh, zero liabilities associated with this this $2.6 trillion. I I think that's the correct way to think about it. Uh, And so I think $11.3 trillion is the correct summary of the on-balance sheet, uh, sheet debt. But the other part of that correct summary is that the so- is that Social Security doesn't have any assets, uh, doesn't have any assets with which to make future social security payments. Does it have any liabilities? Well, yes, I think so. I think Social Security has has implicitly promised uh, to be making certain payments to those retired and disabled next year and the following year. It's true that that's not a promise backed by the full faith and credit of the the, the U.S. Treasury. Uh, but uh, there'd be problems if you uh, if if Social Security didn't didn't uh, make those payments. Uh, you could, in principle, bridge the difference with benefit cuts in Social Security or increases in Social Security contributions or other taxes, those are the same uh, kind of options available when we look at that that federal debt directly, the Treasury debt. So I I think there's there's an argument that the liabilities of Social Security are similar to the liabilities of the Treasury as an off-balance sheet entry. So what are they? Uh, Well, Larry Kotlikoff has some really big ways of getting these numbers, but I'm just going to take them directly from the trustees report of the Social Security uh, uh, Trust Fund. Uh, What what they did, one of the calculations they do, is let's calculate the present value of the future cost for current participants. That means people who are 15 years old or older today, uh, people who are either contributing to Social Security or receiving Social Security, uh, just, just for their lifetime, what's it going to cost to do what we're promising? $52 trillion. What's the uh, uh, income uh, dedicated for Social Security uh, uh, over the future? Present value, that comes to $25 trillion. You get an unfunded obligation just for current participants of uh, $26 trillion. If you add that to the other, we're up to $40 trillion. Now, well, this is such a big number, I I don't even know how to think about it. Uh, Obviously, something's going to happen. Obviously, those 15-year-olds are not going to be paid everything they've They've been promised. I, I, th- I think that's that's pretty clear. Something's got to give. So I don't want to so much make too much of any one of these numbers. Uh, say it's $40 trillion and not some other. It's just to emphasize that... We face a real fiscal challenge with an aging population and fewer people working. Uh, this is going to be an actuarial problem to, to deal with. And it is something you want to add to a number like $11.3 trillion when you ask how easy is it going to be for the US government to make its uh, uh, payments for uh, obligations in the future. And then, of course, there's Medicare. Uh, Medicare Part A, the unfunded obligation, again from, there, from the government's trustees report uh, of Medicare Part A, just current participants comes to nine point six trillion. Uh, brings our TurboTax total of fifty trillion. Uh, there's another thirteen trillion from Medicare Part B, uh, and don't forget Medicare Part D, that's the uh, drug program. So we're up to sixty-eight trillion there if you take, take as I say, the numbers from the trustee reports. And there are lots of other trust funds. Uh, so, uh, for example, there's $836 billion that the Treasury owes to federal uh, retired federal employees funds. Uh, and I haven't made an effort to figure out what really the obligations are those going to be. I'm going to make a very conservative assumption, given the other things I've looked at. This is recklessly conservative. I'm going to assume that those, that trust fund for government employees is actuarily balanced meaning that its uh, uh, present value of unfunded obligations is $836 billion. So that's something we want to add to this off-balance sheet total. There are other uh, federal accounts. Uh, similarly, uh, gets us to a number like $70, 70 trillion, uh, basically six times the size of the uh, acknowledged uh, obligations. And the final point I want to make in closing is, Well, these off-balance sheet liabilities can become on-balance sheet. Uh, For example, the savings and loan crisis, uh, uh, one estimate is that that cost the Treasury $124 billion, Southeast Asian crisis, there's some economists anyway that have argued uh, that it was the cost of bailing out uh, and guaranteeing the banking system. Came to 65% of GDP for Indonesia, 35% for Thailand, uh, that those were at least one contributing factor in the currency crisis there. Uh, more recently, Jesus mentioned Spain and Ireland. Another example, the government guarantees of the banking system Uh, ended up costing uh, the government 45% of GDP, uh, unambiguously a factor plunging that country into uh, uh, a a sovereign debt crisis with with quite significant consequences. So uh, conclusion, the off-balance sheet liabilities of the US government are extremely large. And uh, so if nothing else, I think you have to acknowledge they're capable of having uh, very big effects.
1: <clears throat> so, the first discussion will be Phil Swagel from University of Maryland. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Five minutes. Okay.
3: Uh. Hmm. This is a good, thank you very much. Someone, uh, someone was uh, controlling things behind the scenes, which was uh, very good. All right. Well, this is a, it's a very nice paper. It's a very, uh, very useful exercise to, um, to to put together all the uh, off balance sheet um, obligations. Um, I'm going to focus in my discussion on a couple of different things. Why do these arise? Uh, to some extent, um, how will they be resolved? And um, and a little bit what uh, what do they mean. And there's a sense in which every every liability uh, is different. So I'm going to go through some of them um, and, and have different motivations for uh, for some of them. There's one thing I wanted to, to say at the beginning, though, which is that there is some element of, of commonality in that um, transparency, or in some sense, the avoiding transparency, is often a common motivation for using. Uh, implicit liabilities. And I, I think that's not a surprise. I, I don't think that's especially uh, uh, deep. But I thought I'd just mention some, uh, some of them. So one is in the financial crisis, um, uh, the, 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 the Fed's extraordinary actions that, uh, that, that Jim's paper goes through and, and lists. There's a sense that those were at least initially born out of necessity, right? When Bear Stearns got into trouble and was taken over by JPMorgan Chase, the Fed took on $29 billion of, uh, of assets that JPMorgan didn't want to touch. And that was an implicit liability, right? It was—it was very poorly understood. It was done because it was the only thing that, that could be done, right? There's no other legal mechanism to deal with it, and um, and so that was, that was done. So in some the, the lack of transparency was probably beneficial in, in a strange sense. Um, and again, that's that's controversial. So, but I'll come back to that in, in a few minutes when I talk about well, what is a bailout? When is you know? So was the the Fed made a profit? You know, depending on how you calculate it, but it looks pretty much like the Fed made a. a a lot of profit on on the assets, the 29 billion of assets. So is was that a bailout? Well, I'd say yes, but uh, but I'll, I'll come back to that. Student loans, the same thing, right? There's a an element of the lack of transparency in the accounting, right? The the federal government accounts for those using the Federal Credit Reform Act, and which uh, there's a whole bunch of papers from uh, CBO that Debbie, Debbie Lucas did when she was uh, at CBO that shows that that underestimates the risk involved. <coughs> with uh, the, the federal liabilities. And so there is there's an oddity that when the federal government essentially took over student lending, moved student lending from the private sector to the public sector, the federal government made money on the transaction, which, of course, doesn't make any sense. I mean, there's no reason to think the federal government is better at financial, making, financial decision making than the private sector. It's just purely an artifact. Of the uh, of the accounting, but there's a in substance that I, I'd say that goes into the, the lack of uh, transparency as well. Um, the FHA is the same thing. The FHA does the same uh, does the same accounting. Whereas uh, ironically, the GSEs, wh- which had a, a huge implicit liability that was shown on the screen, the uh, accounting for the federal support for Fannie Mae and uh, Freddie Mac is actually done using fair value accounting. So I think it really was Debbie Lucas when she was at CBO got that done, and so. As soon as the GSEs do it right, the FHA doesn't, Uh, and then the pension liabilities, uh, and and I think, right, it's there for the for the uh, federal government. It's there for the states as well. And of course, I I know Jim's written about uh, San Diego in the past, but of course, California as a whole is an example of this, right, where the sort of media reports from California talk about how California is back and is great shape. But of course, it can only do that with you know, sort of, you know, aggressively closing its eyes, you know, closing closing the eyes about uh, the unfunded pension um, liabilities. Okay, so that's uh, that's transparency. I do want to mention one, this is a, an aside, one little bit of brilliance within the, the federal government, and that's at the Treasury Department, with the financing of these. So the the lending that gets done when the student student loans uh, uh, borrow from the Treasury, they do it through the FFB, the Federal Financing Bank. And that's it's, a, it's actually it's a brilliant mechanism, because you can imagine lots of people who might say, well, let's have... Let's have a green treasury bond, right? Let's have a treasury bond that gets sold to the market, and all the proceeds of that treasury bond are guaranteed to go subsidize green, whatever green, you know, pick your favorite green project. Um, you can imagine lots of people wanting that. Well, it's a, it's a terrible idea, right? I mean, if you're, if you're the treasury, right, you don't want competition. You don't want to compete with yourself. You're the world's most liquid security. You want. You don't want to chop that up. And so instead, there's an the FFB. So the FFB is, you know, a basically a person or two inside the treasury who says, that's a great idea. We will print up special green treasury bonds just for you that the FFB will give you. But of course, the FFB gets, gets the funds just from the normal treasury desk. So it's a great, uh, so a great mechanism to diffuse those kinds of uh, tensions. OK, so, um, so uh, transparency, I think, is a big, uh, a big one. Um, it, it comes off in other ways as well. So this is just a, a table showing the effects of various uh, policies that would make adjustments to uh, Social Security. And one thing you can see is that policies have different implications at first versus over time. So what the two columns of numbers shows at, at the bottom here, uh, let's see this laser pointer here. Uh, okay. um, nope, that's not it. Uh, OK, the later point doesn't work. OK, very good. All right, so the, the negative 2.67 is the 75-year um, the imbalance is the, the total over 75 years. So it's 2.67% of taxable payroll. And then the last, uh, the last column, the four and a half shows you just in the 75th year. Right? So you can see, of course, that it's getting worse. right? It's getting worse over time. So a policy that looks, there, there are some classes of policies that look good on average over 75 years, but don't look as good in the 75th year. Right? So I just, I, I've listed a couple here. But just to give an illustration, compare in the middle the uh, policy of increasing the retirement age slowly versus increasing the ret- retirement age quickly. And of course, the faster you increase the retirement age, it's like a benefit cut. Um, so it's not a surprise surprising in the 75th year, those two things are the same, because right, we, we reach the, the uh, higher retirement age by the 75th year. But if you do it faster, well, that has a more positive impact on uh, on the Social Security outcome. Um, so let me just look at, let me just show you. Uh, so that, that's just to illustrate. So look at the third line, which is cover state and local employees, and you can see sometimes that's the that's the, the most fascinating one because for over a 75-year horizon, that looks like it's making an improvement in Social Security. But of course, at the end, it's not right because what's happening is you're taking in the the the, the revenues. You're basically saying to a whole bunch of state and local employees, "Okay, start paying Social Security taxes. But then 75 years later and 76 years later, they start collecting the benefits. Um, So there's a whole class of policies like this that not surprisingly feature very prominently in the uh, debate over Social Security reform. Okay, so Social Security, Medicare as well. Um, Again, the point here is that the lack of transparency affects policies, or the combination of implicit liabilities and the lack of transparency affects policies. And so this is just from a few days ago. This is a statement from the Secretary of the Treasury. And I've put part of it in, uh, in, in italics. It's talking about the status of the, uh, of the Medicare trust funds. And so you can see, so it's the, the, the hospital insurance fund is, you know, is, is going to exhaust its assets. But two years later than was projected in the last year's report, well, that's the, the, um, the actuaries assume that medical spending growth would slow slightly. And who knows? But that, you know, hopefully it will. Um, and then nine years later than was projected in the last report released prior to the uh, passage of the Affordable Care Act. Well, <laughs> you know, so what, what happened those, those, the incremental seven years where the Affordable Care Act cut certain Medicare spending, but those economic resources were devoted entirely to the new benefits Uh, from the Affordable Care Act. So those economic resources cannot be both used to extend the life of Medicare and to to pay for the ACA. But, of course, with uh, the non-transparency involved in the implicit liabilities, uh, they can. And in some sense, you can see, you know, the Secretary of the Treasury is a smart guy, and there's lots of smart people there, but they can't resist, right? It's it's such a great soundbite. Even though it doesn't make any sense, they can't resist using it. so, so what, um, what what's the what, what's the problem? So the problem is, I would say the problem is, is one of generational fairness, right? The the longer that that these implicit liabilities uh, sit out there, and, and the longer it takes before action, uh, a- action is taken to address them, well, there's an issue of generational fairness. There'll be some generations that escape from the burden. Of, uh, of paying for their share of these implicit liabilities and this chart just shows it for one one dimension so this is social security this is taken from a, uh, a report that was done by the office of Economic Policy when I was an assistant secretary at the Treasury so this is my uh, my, my report I like to say I mean' it's the staff uh, wrote it but it's, it's a really nice report um, and uh, so it', was, I mean, it was done by the the you know excellent career staff uh, and it just it shows well what happens if you you know, just just raise taxes to close the Social Security gap to, to fund the implicit liability. What happens if you do it now versus you wait until the, you know, the, the benefits are about to be cut? Well, of course, you have if you wait, you have to have a higher tax rate, and you know, 5.8 instead of 3.5, and the reason is is all these generations of people who escape from from shouldering uh, their part of the of the burden and, and what the the X I'm sorry the, the y-axis here shows is what's the the net benefit rate right so you pay in your contributions your social Security tax you get back benefits and this does the the calculation on average over over cohorts lifetimes about what their net benefit rate is and of course you know not surprisingly the longer you wait the the, the worse off the generations are they have to pay the higher tax uh, higher tax rate Okay, so, this is, so this is the cost of waiting, the cost of not addressing the implicit liabilities. Okay, so you can see uh, uh, it, it goes for both. I'm going to I'm going to skip uh, uh, this. Let me, let me touch briefly then on um, on what is a, a, a bailout, um, and, and I think it's a really tough uh, is a tough question. So I mentioned Bear Stearns, the same thing with AIG, right? The federal government got back its money from AIG. Did they make a profit? Did they not? You know, that's a, that's a, you know an argument to be had. But I think one, someone could say, well, no, there's no bailout because uh, you know they, they, everything was gotten back. On the other hand, at the time that those actions were taken, I think there's a full expectation of a loss. Um, and so especially with AIG, I, I think it'd be hard to say AIG was not a bailout. Okay, So that's, that's bullet three. On the other hand, we have the FDIC, and Jim's paper uh, focuses very nicely on, uh, on that. Um, During the crisis, the FDIC took actions to avoid having to dip into its Treasury funding, right? So those are full faith and credit uh, liabilities. Uh, but the FJC really doesn't want to have to do that, right? They really don't want to have to go to the treasury and borrow money, and in the case of WAMU, the, the uh, large thrift that, uh, that went, went bust, the FJC rearranged the order of, uh, of uh, creditors, right? They basically said some of the, the more junior um, creditors got preference over the more senior ones, and they did that in order not to have to dip into their um, uh, into, into their fund, right? So, and that, that caused all sorts of problems, I and mean, uh you know, and so people said, "Okay, the FDIC is going to do that to Wamu." Well, I'm not lending money to Wachovia, and so Wachovia went bust. Um, so, so there are uh, uh, there are negative effects. And then Dodd Frank, the Dodd Frank Financial Regulatory Reform Act, has um, has another liquidity fund, right? So if uh, a large financial institution goes out of business. The federal government, the FDIC, can borrow money to keep that business afloat. Now, there's recoupment, right? The bondholders are sp- supposed to take losses. Eventually, there's a tax on the rest of the industry. But is that a bailout or not? I mean, that's a uh, that's a, a, a big issue. <clears throat> to remind me, I have another, what, three or Eight four. minutes. Oh, eight minutes. Okay, good. I'm in, I'm in great shape. Okay, very good. Okay, excellent. Thank you. Um, okay, so, uh, so I think it's a really... Uh, 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 important question. I, I, I mean, since I've eight minutes, I'll just I'll just give you my answer, which is I think the Dodd Frank orderly liquidation fund is not a bailout because the losses are pre-programmed, right? It's, it's well understood these are the people who will take the losses, and the federal provision of uh, funding is just liquidity, right? In that sense, but obviously there, there are people who disagree. Um, so one solution. Um, uh, I don't have the solution, but I want to point to one of the credit provision programs that I think worked reasonably well, and that's the, the credit program that supported securitization. So this is the T-A-L-F, the TALF. Um, and that had the, the uh, feature that someone who wanted um, uh, funding to uh, undertake securitized lending could get it from the, the combination of the, the Treasury and the, and the Fed, but at, at a penalty rate. It was a considerable penalty over um, the normal spread between AAA-rated securitized assets and, uh, and, and treasuries. But of course, a, a much narrower spread than was the case during the financial crisis. And so in some sense, the TALF was set up to discourage use as the crisis abated, Right? So they said, OK, you want to borrow money. You, 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 know, credit card company, you, you want to borrow money to fund your credit card uh, liabilities. Well, that's fine. We're here for you. You have to pay 150 basis point penalty. <clears throat> And we know in normal times, you'd pay a 20-point uh, penalty, you know, penalty to the market or spread to treasuries instead. Well, when we go back to normal times, you'll go back to the market. You won't come to us, to the government. And so I had this natural feature that it was used in the crisis times and then fell out of use as soon as things turned back to normal. Now, that was done during the crisis. I don't think it should be permanent. I think it gives an illustration of what could be done in a crisis, but it's not, uh, not something you'd want to set up uh, permanently. But again, that's the kind of policy debate. OK, all right, so let me, let me close then in an unconventional way, which is actually I'm going to illustrate what Jeff Myron said at the beginning in his opening remarks about not, um, not wanting any particular point of view. So I'm going to close with an attack on our host, right, on the Cato Institute, uh, which is an unconventional thing for discussants. Um, so uh, no, it's, you'll see it's not, not much of an attack. But um, I, I thought it was very valuable, again, to, to talk about the implicit liability. And, and a big one, an implicit one that was made explicit, was in housing finance. Where um, the implicit liability of uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac was made explicit during the crisis, and now there's all this debate about uh, about what what to do with it. Um, so this is my chart about sort of where we are today up in the uh, the northwest, and then what are the possibilities for reform generally moving to the southeast here, right? And the the the, the three reform bubbles correspond to options in a, a report put out by the Treasury Department um, a, a couple years ago, um, and and. What's interesting to me is that the options go, in some sense, okay, uh, in, in the direction of a receding government involvement. Right? So in the Northwest, the top top left, the government today backs essentially all conforming mortgages. Right? So not all, any mortgage that's eligible for a government backing uh, basically receives one. Um, and there's no private capital. right? There's some down payments. Maybe there's loan-level private mortgage insurance. But at the level of the mortgage-backed security, which Fannie and Freddie is involved with, uh, there's no, no private capital there, right? So there's losses. The losses go to Fannie and Freddie, and then they go to uh, to all of us as, as uh, taxpayers. So you can imagine reform that goes in a couple of different dimensions, which is bring in some private capital, right? So if the housing market turns down again, private um, you know the private priors of capital take losses first, and then the government takes losses afterwards. And that might be what I've la- labeled here as option number three. Um, you can keep going then and say, okay, let's have so much, um, so much private capital that the government's share of, of the losses is really very small. And it could be that, that some, uh, some, some loans that could be eligible for a guarantee just voluntarily choose not to get one because the, the cost of, of, of obtaining that guarantee from the government is so high. And that would be option two. So and you can see this is a line, right? The government says, all right, we're going to charge you for the, the guarantee. We used to give it away for free. Now we're going to charge you for it. And you just keep charging people for it. And eventually some people will stop using it. And so that's generally the, the going from, from the top left down uh, down here. And eventually, the government charges enough. Um, people won't take up the government guarantee. Or the government says, you have to have 100% private capital in front of the government guarantee. Well, of course, then there's no government uh, uh, guarantee. And that's a fully private system. And so there's a sense now in which the debate over housing finances. Right, we've made this, this liability. We've turned it from implicit to explicit. Now do, what do we do? How do we have a system going forward? And in some sense, we're stuck. We're stuck in the top <clears> left. <throat> and what's fascinating to me is that the debate is over, well, should we start moving down? Right? Of course, I think we all understand as we start moving down, mortgage interest rates will rise, right? reflecting the, the cost of protecting taxpayers. Will we get all the way to the bottom? Well, who knows? right? I mean, you know, w- without a guarantee, what will happen to interest rates I don't know, they'll be higher, how much higher, what's the political implication of that, I don't know. But I do know that if we do nothing, we're gonna stay where we are, which is the fullest liability. What's fascinating to me in the debate is that the debate centers over, should we reach the end or not? When of course to reach the end, you have to go through the middle parts. And so this is a kind of distortion of the the policy debate that I think these implicit liabilities give is, um, uh, these, these debates about you know what is the perfect endpoint? How do we deal with the implicit liabilities without recognizing well these intermediate points? Right? We can we can start to address the implicit <coughs> liability in a partial way, diminish it, and then hopefully as a society work through to the end where it's uh, where it's the smallest. And the attack on the host is just because Cato's position is, is fascinating that we will not move an inch from the top until we are guaranteed we get to the bottom, which I think is saying well let's just let's just preserve the implicit liabilities. So it's a fascinating thing, and I think in some sense it is an illustration of how difficult it is to uh, to, to deal with these. Okay. So what do I Well done. Okay. Oh,
1: program. No <laughs> program. Sorry. Thank you.
4: And the second discussion is Douglas holtz Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for uh, being here, for Cato, for the invitation, uh, Jeff Meyer in particular, and and to Jim for a uh, fascinating paper and for the collective to allow me to revisit the halcyon days of my membership of the Federal Accounting Standards Advisory Board. (laughs) Um, uh, That is not to be confused with the FASB, which actually does something of significance, but... um, uh, I, I it led me through all these issues in the valuation and presentation of various kinds of federal liabilities. And I want to talk a little bit about that today, um, talk about what's in and what's out of the calculations, touch a little bit on the, the valuation issues, which are quite difficult and which I think Jim was real clear about, and then um, uh, close with some comments on their significance. Um, uh, certainly, th- this is a very timely paper, and th- this is a topic that is – uh, under discussed now um, and and I think we're going to spend a lot more time on it. so the, the bottom lines are real simple There's big numbers involved 70 trillion dollars has a ballpark much larger Than the 12 trillion dollars of debt in the hands of the public that gets so much attention right now and the numbers that are in that 70 trillion are numbers from the, the housing support and other loan guarantees student loans in particular uh, deposit insurance the Fed and and the government trust funds but it's worth noting, and, and Jim's clear about this in the paper, that it leaves out a lot of things as well. The, the PBGC, the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, is not in here. You could make a case that it ought to be. It's another uh, financial liability that could end up on the government books. Um, uh, the Export-Import bank's not in here. Uh, we're on the hook for, for that as well. Uh, we don't have in here um, some other future liabilities that, while not booked, are pretty, pretty certain. Uh, veterans uh, costs associated with uh, benefits we've promised veterans which are liable to show up as they age uh, given their service, and uh, environmental uh, cleanup costs. Um, right now we're forking out about a billion dollars a year in both uh, Savannah, Georgia, and Hanford, Washington to clean up from the, the nuclear programs that were in those locations. Uh, so far that billion dollars a year has produced zero effective remediation, and um, we're likely to spend a little bit more, as my, my cheap estimate, uh, before we're done. And so you, you can uh, try to sort of draw these lines in a variety of ways, and I don't think there is a single magic way. It comes back to the question at the end, you know, what question are you trying to answer? Uh, But it's worth noting that, you know, this leaves out some things, and these are very large numbers to begin with, and it's always worth trying to walk away with, you know, what do you think of that? Um, I used to think that the only moral of this was that this was the artifact of inventing things called mandatory spending programs, and my view was that Up until the invention of Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, large autopilot spending programs, whatever you thought of Congress, which I don't think too highly of, um, you know, on average, they couldn't get it too wrong because every year they'd have to come up with the money to pay for what uh, they, they had promised to spend. And so even if they were pretty incompetent, we stayed pretty close to balance through 200 years of history. And then we invented this new thing. Uh, And then as I read the paper, I was reminded that's not really true either, because it turns out that even prior to that invention, we had to come up with uh, two laws to stop agencies from creating their own off-balance sheet liabilities, things called the Anti-Deficiency Act, where you weren't allowed to spend money you didn't have. Agency heads did that regularly until we passed the law. Now they go to jail if they do it. And um, we also uh, have this thing where you're not allowed to augment your appropriation. It's illegal to take donations. Secretary Sebelius may learn about this soon. Um, because you can't be obligating funds that you don't have the Congress's authority to spend. And so I think the lesson here is that these are exercises in the difficulty in controlling the, incur- the you know, incurring of liabilities in representative democracies. And Spain's been through it vividly. Uh, we've seen lots of this around the world. And the U.S. has a lot of this. And um, I think it's important to recognize we're not immune from this fundamental difficulty. Now, how big is the difficulty? Um, these are all, 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 there are a lot of very difficult issues in valuation here. I, I'm not going to do justice to, to all of them. I want to talk a little bit about the social insurance pieces and a little bit about uh, the housing pieces, because those are some uh, that I went through pretty carefully, including uh, the exercises at CBO that got referred to uh, earlier in the discussion. Um, so uh, first one comes up with the social insurance one is this issue of projecting the future and what you want to do with the promise versus the law. Social Security is the best example. Um, Under the current law, the way it works is that in uh, 20 years, most recent projections, uh, the Social Security Trust Fund exhausts, Mm -hmm. and at that point the law says we cut benefits 25% across the board, so benefits just drop to match the inflows of payroll tax revenue, And then you you proceed forward with a pay-as-you-go system with revenues roughly matching the benefits. And that's that. And you can project that as the future of Social Security. That's a very different future liability than one where you assume they somehow make good on the current benefit promises, which exceed the current uh, revenue uh, projections, and thus um, have a very different valuation of, of what the trust fund represents. Does it represent exactly what that is, the ability to spend up to that point, and then it comes down? Or does it represent a commitment to the benefit structure that is Social Security? And if you do that projection, um, you, you very quickly uh, get a very big number because uh, that the, the, the current policy of benefit growth uh, is much more dramatic than cutting it across the board. I will point out that when the actuary signs off on these reports, they are effectively signing off on the promise of the benefit cut. It's the only thing that keeps it actuarially sound over these horizons. And so you do have to come to a decision about that. It's fundamentally a decision about uncertainty, and uncertainty is really, really hard to resolve in these, in these issues. Uh, I was reminded of this at CBO. We put together uh, a model. It's a sort of modest micro model that looked at births, deaths, uh, marriages, divorces, fertility decisions, retirement, earnings, few other things, and it went over a 100-year horizon. And the um, senator asked me how reliable it was, and I said, well, it's very good, sir. It's, it's state-of-the-art. The, the difficulty is if you'd asked me to do this in 1900, we'd have had to forecast uh, the First World War, the Second World War, the Great Depression, oh, and the invention of the Social Security system. So I think you ought to take some of this with a grain of salt. <laughs> um, and and that—that's. this is part and parcel of these valuation issues. Um, you, you do have to go over these horizons, and you have to figure out whether you're going to Anticipate fixes the Social Security system or not and that makes all of these um, These programs very difficult to, uh, to evaluate same issue arises in in Medicare and, and Medicare has uh, an additional uh, feature that makes it hard right now If you look at the gap between Cash coming in and cash going out. So you just, you just stop trying to do assets and liabilities. You just look at the income flows uh, the gap between cash coming in, premiums and payroll taxes, combined for A, B, C, and D, and, and all the different pieces of Medicare. But if you look at cash in, cash out, uh, the gap between the money coming in and money going out is $300 billion a year. That's a, that, that is the cash flow deficit in Social Security, a third of all these 1000000000000 billion deficits we've heard so much about. Uh, we get 10,000 new beneficiaries every day in Medicare. Um, there are many people who look at those and, and forecast that the system as we know it will simply collapse under its own financial weight and will look very different inside of a decade because, you know, Medicare is responsible for 28% of our debt outstanding right now. Going forward, it's going to be responsible for a bigger fraction. It's going to have to change. If you try to evaluate the implicit liability associated with a social insurance program like Medicare, you have to make some, take some stand on how it's going to evolve. And I think that's an exceedingly difficult thing to do right now in the, in the context of Medicare. And so what does the, the hospital insurance trust fund, which is a tiny piece of Medicare financing, represent? Again, is it just what's in the, in the fund and the narrow piece, or is it the broader commitment to the benefit structure that is Medicare? You have to make a call, and it changes the numbers dramatically. Medicare is especially problematic for the following reason. Uh, over the past four decades... Uh, and with the exception of a, of a couple of recent years, which has gotten a lot of attention, the stylized fact has been that healthcare spending per person in the United States has grown about 2 to 3 percentage points faster every year than has income per capita in the United States. And so in the horse race between costs and, and resources, costs win by 2 to 3 percentage points a year. What that's meant is that uh, growth rates in, in things like Medicare and Medicaid have been on an annual basis numbers that are 6, 7, and 8 percent a year. Now, if you're out there trying to figure out the present value of the, the Medicare spending, and thus the liability that, that's there under current law, uh, you have to discount it. And, and you can go look pretty hard, and you can't find a discount rate that looks anything like 6 7 or 8% right now, which means that if you do this exercise literally over an infinite horizon, our liability of Medicare is infinite, and that the only way you can get it to converge and get a number is to either forecast a much higher discount rate, so you have an interest rate forecast that shows Treasuries going up, or healthcare spending has to slow down, which of course it does. But when it slows down, 2023, 2033, 2051, and how much it slows down drives the numbers. And um, implicitly, we know that we have a big problem in Medicare, quantifying it, the valuation issue gets really difficult fast. Um, And so um, that's worth thinking about when when you get into this business of trying to quantify the off balance sheet parts of our liabilities. Uh housing's equally interesting, and I thought it was very nice that Jim and inc- spent so much time on the housing <laughs> issues. They're they're really important. I was at CBO when we did the calculations of the implicit taxpayer support to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And it's important to recognize that those were ex-ante calculations. They were answers to the question: looking forward, what is the the likely contribution of taxpayers? To the operations of these uh, otherwise private entities, and there were a whole slew of provisions surrounding Fannie and Freddie: uh, appointment of board members, exemption from securities registration requirements. Um, uh, uh, They didn't have to pay certain taxes. They had had checking accounts at the Treasury that made people think that they were quasi—you know—more than quasi-governmental. They were going to get the backing. And if you took that at face value, what was it worth? Well. What it was worth was you had the option always to put to the government the liabilities of Fannie and Freddie, and that option had value. And what we did was run an option valuation model and find out what it was worth. And the answer was a lot. It was about $20, $30 billion back in 2003, 4, and 5. And that was implicitly the taxpayer's annual contribution to the bottom line of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. They could operate in a way that gave them these higher returns to their shareholders because the taxpayers were standing there ready to take take the hit. that's a very different answer from what is it what is the valuation now that we have in fact exercised the option and we own fannie and Freddie and and here I think Jim did it exactly right by saying they are federal government obligations. This is one where you know in this town there's been a, a slight divide and one that's significant the the CBO early on recognized that with conservatorship and then the steps that that forced Fannie and Freddie to undertake mortgage, uh, reworking mortgages, lots of mortgage um, uh, modification programs, we were essentially using those as tools of administration policy. They were agencies of the federal government and that they should be treated as agencies no different than interior or labor. They put them on a consolidated basis with the federal budget. And um, if you take that to its extreme, that meant all those $5 trillion, $6 trillion, and rising amounts of uh, agency debt were really uh, full faith and credit debt of the, the federal government. Um, the, the administration didn't do that. The administration continued the fiction that they were private entities and thus uh, any dividend payments from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to the treasurer viewed as income as opposed to just intergovernmental transfers. And I think the real goal was to make sure no one ever thought really honestly that their $5 trillion in debt was also debt of the federal government. But the only reason to do what we did was to make sure they didn't default on that $5 trillion in agency debt. So it was a pretty thin excuse, in my view, to just avoid the accounting. Um, once you do that, you have a, a, a really different valuation issue, which is you own everything in all states of nature. It's become part of the, of the, the federal budget, and I think um, uh, that's the right way to do it right now. Uh, the last thing I'll say about these valuation issues is all of this is, in, is intended properly to give a scale uh, for how much the taxpayer is on the hook for and as a result, understand the commitment of, of private resources to governmental activities, uh, I think it is equally value, valuable to know when those resources are gonna come due. And um, some of the, our commitments are contingent commitments like the option value in Fannie and Freddie, like loan guarantees, which when things go bad, we're gonna have those bills come due. Some like Medicare, Medicaid, uh, have to do with incomes and aging, Social Security, aging uh, almost exclusively. So you can actually figure out more about when they come due. That's equally important information, especially for politicians. Politicians care a lot about whether the bill comes due in October or December. November's a bad time for bills to come due.
5: Yeah.
4: Um, timing is everything. Mm-hmm. And so uh, in addition to this, I think it's, it's always very good to, for people to emphasize the timing of these things. Right. Let me close with a couple of thoughts on sort of uh, what's the significance of these large numbers. Um, one, this does, uh, to me at least, read as uh, an implicit, pun intended, uh, call for um, an enhanced federal credit reform act. Uh, Phil mentioned FICRA. Uh, the, no one should know this stuff, but you know, the federal credit reform act was meant to solve a real transparency problem, which is if the federal government made a loan of $100, we showed an outlay of $100 on the budget, clear commitment of resources. If it guaranteed a loan of $100, as long as the loan didn't go bad, you never showed anything on the budget, even though these are economically equivalent uh, activities, making sure the $100 of, of lending happened. The Federal Credit Reform Act was meant to put those on an even uh, playing field and, and book in the budget a cost when you, when you wrote down the guarantee for this loan and treat the, the direct loan of $100 as just the present value of losses on that loan. So you sort of look at Uh, What what over the life of the loan you'd end up losing if it was zero it cost zero if you had a real loss You'd write that down It was great at the beginning and it was a way to take a lot of off balance sheet Liabilities like guarantees and put them on the budget and recognize them But it didn't do it right. I mean there are lots of flaws with it. it They were flawed in both the way they were done They missed some risks and those risks turned out to be significant and they also didn't include everything Fannie and Freddie weren't in FICRA the pension benefit guarantee isn't in FICRA Um, There are lots of reasons why you'd want to expand the scope since the government's become a very large financial entity with a sideline in national defense and low-income programs. So, you know, you might want to cover all the activities that it's engaged in. Uh, The second way you might want to read this is um, as as a real testament to the exposure of the federal finances to risk, Uh, whether it's interest rate risk, which is clearly a big exposure right now, or to other sorts of uh, unseen contingent risks, and I think that's that's an important lesson to draw from this. There's a lot of exposure to risk out there. It's one of the lessons of the financial crisis for countries everywhere. Countries that get in trouble have all these contingent liabilities that pop up in unexpected ways, and and we we get bad results. Third lesson here is just simply what's the economic burden that we are in in effect imposing on the economy through uh, government policy, much larger than the conventional measures might um, um, uh, suggest, and. Largely, that burden is going to be focused on uh, payers in the future, and so the fairness of this burden, uh, because it is not clearly displayed on the the government's balance sheet, I think becomes a a first-order public policy issue. What are we doing to the next generations in terms of growth, tax burdens, and their ability to to finance the private activities? And then the last thing you could do with these numbers is uh, take the pieces out that look like bailouts or responses to the crisis and start doing ex-post policy uh, evaluations on did we get our money's worth out of this response and uh, how big uh, was the response, uh, how fast did we recover, what were the objectives of the response, financial stability, economic growth, employment, and, and use them as the starting point for that kind of a discussion. So there are lots of potential reasons to have these numbers. Um, I'm, I'm delighted to have uh, him uh, Deliver this paper today because it's such an important topic. And and I just want to say that it's it's uh, a, a good faith effort in pointing out uh, how big they are and how hard it is to value these. I don't think there were any uh, uh, missing uh, parts of the discussion. This is a tough area, and uh, he, he did a good job of laying out the issues very well. Thank you.
1: And do you want to reply before we get
2: into the public? Thanks much, uh, Doug and Phil, for some really great comments. Uh, I think I agree with all of them. Just to underscore them. Uh, so Phil was pointing out that, that in his view, a, a key issue is generational fairness. That that's that's part of what we're talking about. Uh, and related to that, I think is Doug's point that these these long-term projections are exceedingly difficult to make. And that both both points are absolutely true. Uh, but I guess one of the things I was trying to emphasize is is the last point Doug was getting to that. Uh, uh, this is a significant burden, apart from the fairness issue. Uh, I, I think we understand uh, $11, 12000000000000 trillion debt, uh, that's going to be a burden, making the interest payments on that. Uh, and, and whether it's fair or not, there's a, there's a question of do you have the resources to, uh, uh, to make that? And whatever the correct valuation of how Social Security and Medicare and so on are going to play out, uh, there 's no question which direction those take the calculations in terms of it 's going to be that much more more difficult and I guess my concern is is looking at the experience of Southeast Asia and Ireland and Spain. Uh, that that it, it precisely is this exposure to risk that Doug was talking about, that uh, we know we've got a big burden even with the official numbers. We know it's an even bigger burden any way you slice it when you look at the aging population and the, the commitments we've made to that. And if something goes wrong, uh, do we have the, the the resources to cope with it? So. Uh, yeah i i think that's the main point i want to uh, that i personally get out of this rather than being willing to go to bat for the the particular numbers uh just just pointing out that there is a real uh, a bigger fiscal challenge e- even than we acknowledge with the uh, official very big uh deficit, debt numbers
1: okay so now the speakers can take questions from the audience. Uh, but let me set up first three rules. First, please wait to be called. Second, uh, wait for the microphone so everyone can uh, hear your question and also the audience that is following online. And third, please state your name and affiliation before asking the question. And let's try to keep the questions relatively conc- concise. Thank you. Mm-hmm.
6: So my thoughts. Oh, sorry. This is Bob Hall, of Stanford. Um, there's. This is a very interesting beginning of collecting all this data. The question is what to do with the data. Um, first of all, the, you have an asymmetric treatment here of assets. Uh, that is, you've got you, you have the unfunded liability of of uh, of Social Security, but but you have you don't have the offsetting assets for mortgages, student loans. Uh, general revenue uh, and depository assets. Uh, I may have missed some, but those are four important ones. Student loans, I think, are very badly misunderstood by most economists. They, we talk all the time about how many student loans are in default, but a defaulted student loan does not discharge the loan. And the loan, a student loan stays with you for y- your entire life, if not longer. Um, and that's a long time. Uh, and there are <laughs> provisions for recovering student loans from Social Security uh, but they come after you even before that. So uh, there's the, when, the, when the government takes over a student loan by paying off the guarantee, it's acquired a valuable asset because it still has a claim on the income stream of the student. But that just illustrates that the asset side uh, is important. I think When you think about what kind of analysis you'd like to do with this, uh, what comes to my mind is that we want a, a spreadsheet of the federal government that extends out into the indefinite future. Um, at least a thousand years, uh, and and is subject to some kind of a terminal condition. Uh, and furthermore, the spreadsheet should be state contingent. Uh, obviously, we, 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 and this gets very close to the idea of a stress test. So, so we need a a federal uh, budget uh, or federal expenditure taxation uh, stress test that goes into the indefinite future. Uh, that's all doable. Um, and it seems like you're you're laying the groundwork uh, to do that. Uh, the issue of Phil, I think, mentioned uh, uh, interge- intergenerational equity. That points very strongly in the direction that what we've done so far is the right thing. In a growing with with uh, per capita income growing, uh, we we ought to run up a huge debt uh, and then let the rich people pay it off. Uh, I'm all in favor of that. And, you know, I wish my parents had had the benefit of that, but, you know, they were in a pay-as-you-go regime. Um, but I think we ought to, we ought to embrace uh, the uh, significant attempt to shift it forward to a richer future that rather than making it seem like it's a huge mistake.
2: Uh, well, it's always very provocative ideas, but the one I have to respond to is this this idea that because per capita income is growing... We, we want more debt. I mean, the growth rate has been slowing down, and that's at the same time that debt to GDP has been going way up. Uh, and, and I think, for example, the experience from Italy is, is very, very relevant. You can, you can handle those debt loads. You're right, they make sense if you've got the growth, but if we're transitioning from a period of faster growth to slower growth, which I think we are, and with more of the population retired, uh, I, I think we need to revisit that calculus.
3: Hmm? Yeah. I had one, one note. Just uh, the point on the assets is a good one. I have one il- illustration of uh, of what I think will happen with student loans, which is um, the auto um, the uh, the health plans for auto uh, industry workers. At one at some point in the past, decades ago, they were transferred from the firms to the unions, but they were well you know you know uh, well short of being funded. And so I think implicit in that was the idea that the unions, the unions expected some future administration to write them a check and sure enough in two thousand nine they got a, a check as part of the um, the auto bankruptcy was was structured in a way that essentially wrote, wrote the health care plans a, a big check um, and I suspect that's what's going to happen with student loans that at some point someone's going to just write these off um, and there you can see the beginnings of this there's a proposal from um, uh, you know one senator to um, ha- to link the interest rate on student loans to the Fed funds rate, or, or something like that, so which is the beginnings of uh, of this, and I suspect we'll see we'll see more of it. So
4: you become a Warren devotee? Oh. Uh, yeah. So,
3: yeah.
7: <sighs> I'll tell
2: you
7: later. <laughs> yeah. The uh, uh, oh Pat Span just representing myself. The um, I'm a little confused on the you had like 11 trillion as public debt. And it seems like in the newspapers I keep seeing this 16 plus trillion number, and I wonder if, in uh, words that I can understand, you could explain what's, where's that five billion or five trillion that I
2: keep seeing in the papers? Right. The 16 trillion comes from taking each loan and adding them together. So that if, if for example, the Fed made a one-day loan for a billion dollars, and then the next day renewed that same loan. That would count as two billion towards that sixteen trillion that's that's where that that number comes from adding up loans over time, whereas my number was based on look at the total loans outstanding at any fixed time, and that number was never more than one point seven trillion
3: Is this, just to make sure were you were you talking Which, about the the Bloomberg stories on the uh that's what jim that's what jim yeah mentioned. there's
2: the bloomberg the the gao he shouldn't even had that number and a lot of people were I if
3: his question was about the growth versus net debt I it's 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 it's,
2: it's just adding up loans across time it's an integral of loans which isn't the same as debt outstanding
4: so we're not going to help you because no, we're now going to disagree on the panel but <laughs> <laughs> what we do and as a profession it's five, five trillion dollars difference so, between Put, well I'm right and they're wrong. Putting aside what the Fed has done, for the for the, the federal budgetary uh, presentations, there's debt in the hands of the public, and that's the, the 11, 12 trillion number, number here. And then the, the $16 trillion number is total gross federal debt, which includes debt issued by the Treasury to the trust funds and thus owed within the government. And so the the, the Treasury has issued $16 trillion, some of it's held within the government. Eleven trillion is held outside the government, and you hear both numbers used um, interchangeably.
5: So, so the
4: the
7: five the five trillion difference is it's internal in debt. in
4: various pockets inside the federal. It's internal d- internal yes. debt to the government.
2: Okay. I'm sorry. I, I thought originally you were asking about the Federal Reserve, which is a different from the yes. Treasury. Yeah, yeah, I
3: think you answered.
8: <laughs> yeah. Cliff Winston uh, Brookings, I want to just follow up on on Phil's uh, introductory comments and what on what he was going to uh, suggest, and then and then suggestion uh, for you, Jim. You you Phil, you began by saying you know why do we have this problem? You know, and I I, thought, I understood it really from a welfare economic perspective, and then what to do. So you know, you're sort of crying out for policy. And yeah, you know, that's one thing I would just suggest, Jim, is. You know, the paper sort of cries out for you to say something about about policy, even mm-hmm. even speculative, even though that 's sort of difficult but here's one suggestion you know the, the word uncertainty was mentioned uh, by doug, but but I think about this a little, a little differently. You know take the auto bailout, uh, which is one of the bailouts that would go in there but wasn't mentioned and and think about you know how that was structured that it you know, would clearly have the costs in front of us that you know, GM Chrysler are gonna get, get loans and may not pay them back. And as we know, Chrysler hasn't, GM probably won't. And then we know from a Cato paper last, last issue last year that GM also got a big tax benefit on top of this. And so the, the benefits are presumably the availability, if we keep these guys going of their cars, mm-hmm. but of course then you know, we can analyze substitution to, to other vehicles and, and so on and so forth. So when you actually put this all together, you know, it's pretty hard to sort of justify doing this except for one big thing, and that was this and how this whole thing was sold, is that if we don't give this the bail go give the bailout to GM and Chrysler, they're gonna take down the suppliers, who can take down the other oil companies, they can take down the manufacturing sector. So everybody's scared to death and so go ahead and do this. Now, I would suggest that this goes on by the way, in a lot of other trust funds, uh, all the ones I study in in transportation are all the same way. And with the uncertainty I'm talking about is you know, if you move away from the government and try to do private sector solutions, which obviously social security maker, all the kind of stuff. And, you know, that I think is a big part of why we continue to have all this stuff. But it flies in the face of cost benefit because when you start looking at things closely, you know, when you just look at what you know, it's sort of hard to justify doing this and not moving the other things. So the big suggestion obviously is experiments. You know, as much as possible, you know, we need to start in this country experimenting with ways not to be doing these things. I mean, certainly we've had an experiment with autos. I mean, we knew Chrysler had failed before and you know, another company bought them, got rid of them and you know, GM's had 30, 30 more plus years to figure it out and can't get it and I still in the end think it's gonna have problems, et cetera. So you know, I would start thinking about that, that what's keeping all this stuff going is, is uncertainty, but almost a scare story, that if we don't have the government doing this and we have the private sector doing it, then there's all these horrible things gonna happen and I think that's something that we need to address.
4: I just want to to concur with this. I think anyone who has been in the rooms when they've gone through this, Phil was in a lot of them, you know, inevitably the discussion boils down to some ranking member, like a secretary saying, so you're telling me there's a one in a billion chance that the world melts down. Yes, sir. Well then forget it. We're, we're, you know, we're in, we're bailing them out. And, and it's the infinite risk aversion in the crisis that paralyzes the, the evolution of these things. And evidence on the actual scale of both the probability of something happening and the costs that they happen would be enormously beneficial in those rooms at those moments.
3: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, say, I just, I, I thought your points are really good ones also. And it just seems like, um, uh, you know, what you said about experimenting, I think is, is right on. That's kind of what I had in mind with my GSE slide is, right. you know, just start slowly and see how far we go. And, you know, I, I don't think we'll get to a fully private housing market, but see how far we can uh, we can we go. Should, and mean, what's striking is that we're just stuck at, you know, stuck at not even trying the experiment. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay.
9: Raquel. Hi, Raquel Fernandez, and why you? So I have very two very quick comments. One was to push more on the side of the benefits, uh, which. I think this is a really wonderful start to understand the costs and definitely a necessary component. But it's very hard to really think about the costs, about thinking about the benefits. Take the student loan program, the guaranteed student loans. What's the benefit of that program? By how much it does it decrease mm-hmm. the interest rate for students to borrow? What are the future uh, taxes that we get from those students? Mm-hmm. All of that, I You know, if you don't have a good analysis of that feature, it's very hard to make a cost-benefit analysis. So we need the much more impossible task, I think, uh, of uh, valuing the benefits of various programs and understanding them. And then on the comparisons between the US, Spain, and Ireland, it is worth taking into account that we do print our own currency. And for a lot of these liabilities, that does matter.
2: You want to add something yeah, just as far as the second point, uh, yes, you can print currency, but that doesn't create real resources. So this number here, 70 trillion, whichever one you want to use, it's it, it's a real burden. I mean, these are real people expecting real stuff, and. Uh, uh you know the the central bank can raise real resources with seniorage but it's a limit so it, as far as the narrow question of will the US treasury ever default as long as they could always print to pay you're right but as far as whether there is potentially a a concern about where the real resources are going to come from for some of these things i, I think it's a legitimate issue but you're right the mechanics and the dynamics would have to be different than in uh, uh a eurozone country tied to uh Uh, to the euro currency.
5: Um, Okay, I'm Arnold Kling, Uh, no real affiliation. And um, I guess my question is, is the fundamental problem, we're what's the fundamental problem we're trying to solve here? Is the problem we're trying to solve to get the government to manage its finances more rationally or give it, you know, better information to manage its financial resources. And then, you know, Bob Hall's questions were exactly mine, sort of, you know, how come you, you know, you looked at the assets in one case and not in another. And then I, I, I jumped also to Bob's conclusion, which is you really want to do some kind of State contingent story. You say, well, if inflation is the, rises to this level, then this is what's going to happen to us financially. If interest rates do this, if healthcare costs do this, uh, and so on. That's that's a sort of you know, the, and all that is assuming that the government wants to manage its financial resources rationally. Um, and then I guess going back to one other point, Bob Hall said about this whether well, this intergenerational transfer is good or not. You know, I just come to view that, that the, the amount of real resources available at any given time is what it is. You, know, you can't really transfer real resources at least uh, to a first approximation I mean, to, to, across generations. At least I, I wouldn't use these numbers to do that. So I don't, I don't think it's, so anyway, it's, it's a complex problem uh, this problem of how would, how would if the government wanted to manage its resources rationally, and then you have the kind of the second best issue of given that they <coughs> that really doesn't want to manage its resources financially optimally or rationally, what what's the point of the, the information and what's the best way to present information? So, can I
4: say, can, can I say a couple words about that? I mean it. I have spent my career in the, the vain quest that the federal government manage its resources at all. And um, so if you look at it from that perspective, um, one of the things you would do would be to display more clearly as Bob laid out the kinds of resources that you're going to be on the hook for in different circumstances, either in the future as people age or if we have a financial crisis And, and that's that's entirely desirable and there's a lot of this that was intended to, that historically it is intended to do just that, do unified budgeting so they see everything out there, bring all these off balance sheet liabilities they've created onto the budget and, and force them to recognize that they, are, they have a cost somehow. These are all efforts to do that. Uh, I, would, I, I would just you know, share the lessons of time, which are number one, they want a number. You might not like it. I know I don't like it, but they want a number. So you know, we did essentially what Bob described with Social Security. That was a large stress test. How is Social Security stressed by changing fertility, changing uh, marriage patterns? Name it. Um, and they, you know, they wanted a number. You know, so what's the number? And um, so it's, it's we have a difficult sales job in in the, in the financial management world in selling stress tests. Anything that involves more than the mean is a complicated distribution for them. Um, and then uh, the second is uh, timing, as I mentioned earlier. Just expand on that. Uh, they're driven by timing. And and so part of the management task has to be convincing them to move now. And why why now? Uh, that's a part of this. And and you have to deal with that. And the third on the assets, which, which comes up right away. You've got liabilities, but, yes, you've also got assets. It raises uh, a, a very big can of worms that is just as hard as the valuation on the liability side is the – the, first of all, the genuine ability as good curators of government assets, many of which are quite unique in auditing them and know whether you have preserved them correctly, valuing them and utilizing them. it's, it's, it's all really hard and difficult stuff. So this is an area where I think there's an enormous amount of potential improvement. There's some deep intellectual problems, but not one where we have a great track record of success.
3: Now, I just add, this is a, that's what I like about the paper is that it's a really big first step in, uh, in moving forward.
8: Hi, my name is Amanda Deerfield, and I'm a visiting scholar here at Cato. And I have kind of a specific question. Um, I was born in the cohort that has the most negative benefit, you know, per the graph that was on the, on the screen up there. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, have you all seen any analyses considering um, different immigration policies mm-hmm. and how that might change what significant, you know, not benefit that people born in my cohort would see?
3: I was gonna say, um, I I used to No, I used to be um uh at the IMF um working on Greece. This is a long time ago. Um when they were uh and their their approach to solving their social security problem was to let in lots of immigrants from Albania and then kick them out 20 years later. I don't think we're gonna do that. Um so uh but anyway,
4: I, you mean Albanians or in general? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh,
3: anyway, I mean Doug's Doug's been very involved in immigration, and I, I think he's been doing great stuff. So I don't know if you want
4: to. Yes, yeah, so, I mean uh, you can actually go to CBO and look on the website. There are some uh, some sensitivity analysis. Um, I, I think the the fundamental bottom line is that given the current legal structure on Social Security, you're not going to either grow or immigrate your way out of uh, financial difficulty in the program. There will have to be some structural change. Mm-hmm.
1: If I say, some may say something here. I actually was involved in trying to compute the present discounted values of an immigrant for the government in Spain, for the welfare state, and it was negative, because yes, they pay social security taxes, but then they retire, and you know, as right. yeah. we were mentioning before, you are not going to kill them because by that time they are going to be citizens and they are voting anyway. And since immigrants tend to be, at least in the European case, below the median in the distribution of income, they are actually going to get a lot of benefits in things like education and health, et cetera. So even if the current inflow of having immigrants is positive because they are paying now and they are not getting any benefit, it was not clear at all that the additional immigrant was a profit for the European welfare state. For
4: for the US, that calculation was done as carefully, I think, as you can do it, by the National Research Council back in 1996 or 97, I forget, Alan Auerbach, was a big contributor to that effort, and that's still worth reading for sort of how to think about the problem.
7: Oh uh, yeah, just a, a com- another comment on the intergenerational equity or transfer mm-hmm. thing. Arnold Kling said you can't transfer resources across generations. I mean, you can, but I think the way you do that, the only way you can do that really is by if we invest less, right? So, uh, um, so it's, it's not clear how any of these policies really uh, affect the intergenerational, intergenerational transfer of resources. If you, if you know, this may not. If that's the goal, these may not be the most efficient ways. But if it is the goal, then the the way it's the way it would happen is by by reducing investment and therefore increasing our current consumption levels at the expense of leaving less. You know, capital uh, for the future, and there may be better ways of doing that than having uh, um, you know social security uh, deficits or or things like that, uh, if that's if that's what the goal is.